program and his, and his stuff that he had that he put his social security number out there. Now, you guys know what happened, right? I mean, I don't even have to probably finish up this story. But so like his identity got stolen multiple times. Like I think it was 13 times and thousands of dollars was racked up in debt in his name until they took the ad down. So, I mean, here's the thing. We've had it drilled into us, right, in this modern world that we got to protect our identities. I mean, you just don't just willy-nilly do that sort of thing in this digital age. We're all very careful about keeping our identities secure. We answer security questions. We change our passwords. We sit for a long period of time proving to our computers that we're not robots by identifying traffic signs. For I don't know what it is with that. So, like, when the robots take over, we know they can't drive because they don't... But either way, we do a lot of stuff to secure our identities. And interestingly, our identities is something the Bible is really interested in us keeping secure or having secure. Uh, In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to be challenging us to remember our identities compared with what our identities used to be. Remembering who we are right here, right now. So we're going to look at that today as we continue in our study of Ephesians. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you'd like to follow along, if you'll find your way to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Last week, we, we finished chapter 1. Paul was reminding us that this life we have in Christ is one of an ongoing discovery, discovery of our place and our purpose in God's big plan to redeem the world. Today, Paul's going to diagnose the human condition and highlight what God has already done to reverse the plight that we were in as human beings. And when I say we, you know, the plight, the plight that we were in, I, I'm saying that because I make the assumption that each of us is here because we've embraced a faith in Christ and we've committed to following him. And so this is applicable to us. If this is you, then what Paul is going to describe today is who you were and who you are now. And that's a, a strong then and now emphasis that runs through this whole section, who you used to be and but who you are now because of what is because of what Jesus has done uh, for you and and while this has an impact on who we are as individuals, the larger emphasis of what Paul is going to be getting at, and we talked about this before that throughout this entire book, we have a tendency to kind of make this a very individual kind of truth, when in reality what Paul is trying to get at is something that has big ramifications for us on a community level. This new person we have become has a whole new way of relating to other people in this world and to other new persons. Honestly, there's so much in this chapter. We could park in this chapter for a couple months and not mine everything out of this vein, but for expediency's sake, we're going to just focus on this before and after picture of our identity today. So there are two parallel movements in chapter 2. One speaks of our identity of moving from death to life, so it's more of a cosmic kind of thing, how humans and God now relate to each other. And the other, the other parallel speaks of our identity moving from outsiders to insiders within God's kingdom, within his reign as citizens of his kingdom. Both of these things are so important to us, individually, yes, but also corporately, as we form community around these truths. So what does it mean to move from death to life 
on an identity level? What does it mean that we're now joined together as a new humanity in Christ? That's what we're going to explore today as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're there in chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 1. He's speaking to them. He says, once y'all were dead, and remember, the the you needs to be pluralized in our thinking. So once y'all were dead because of your disobedience and many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey obey God. I just have to stop here for just a second because that's a lot of stuff being said here. And the, the NLT does a, a, its best as it can do to, to translate in a way that is going to help our understanding. You know, it's using understandable language. To me, their translation of this makes it a little bit more confusing. And, and so we need to, to look at this. As Westerners who have largely eliminated the spiritual plane from our worldview, we talk, you know, we see talk about someone commanding the, the powers of the unseen world and as good Westerners, we just assume we're talking about something imaginary here. You know, this is, this is like stuff from Harry Potter. You know, this is, the ancients, of course, they still believed in magic and all of those kinds of things. And so the power of the air, you know, we think about that this unseen world, these powers uh, are kind of like in our minds, like, 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 like the flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. You know, there's a wicked witch and the controller of these and sending off these, these demons into the world with their payloads of temptation and misery and they're, you know, attacking all these kinds of things. So let's, and that, what I'm describing there is a product of us as, as modern Westerners. We start imagining things on, on a, on a level that makes it a little bit I don't know, ridiculous. So we kind of become dismissive of it. We have a tendency towards that. Actually, as the church, we have a tendency in two directions, either to be kind of dismissive of it or to be obsessed with it. Uh, we don't seem to find a good middle ground in here. And, and the more literal translation of this actually provides us kind of a middle ground, middle understanding of this. Because the literal words that Paul uses here is when, when, when it says power of the unseen uh, world, the literal wording is the ruler of the power of the air. And that is far more in line with what Paul is trying to get at. Well, what do you mean, Rob? Well, when we say there's something in the air, what do we mean by that? Does he, do you know what I'm talking about? I suppose we could ask Phil Collins, but, but uh, uh, got to be an old rocker to get that joke. But, uh, you know, it usually means when we say there's something in the air, you know, there's romance in the air or there's, you know, tyranny in the air or, or revolution in the air. We're saying that multiple people have similar feelings that something is going on, something is about to happen, that sort of thing. Something's in the air with this. For Paul, and this came out of an ancient worldview, understanding the world this way, that's something in the air was something that was moving people on a societal or even governmental level. The cultural currents, we could say, those were manifestations of an unseen world that was in opposition to God. That's how he saw it. So, listen, you know, his view may have included flying demon monkeys or or whatever, but his overall concept was that whatever he saw happening within this world had behind it some other reality that was moving. So when he saw a Roman soldier arresting a Christian and dragging him off to jail, he was not just looking at a governmental abuse of power. He was looking at the the culture, the air, the prince and the power of the air is behind this thing, moving the culture in this direction. Whenever he saw churches dividing along ethnic or, or class 
distinctions, he saw them being influenced by the power of the air. They're breathing the polluted air of the the cultural norms. This is how Paul pictures our identity before Christ as people who used to be just drifting along with the cultural currents controlled by the unseen forces who, who set the beat of that. And that's who we were, but that's not who we are anymore. Does that make sense? Do we understand what we're talking about? Okay, we'll keep going. Verse 3. Funny, I said, does that make sense? I looked to this side of the room. Does it make sense over here too? I want to make sure we're all making sense here. Okay, verse 3. All of us used to live this way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Okay, again, I'm sorry. NLT, I like it. I really do. But this is terrible. This is, I mean, like, this, this is a very unfortunate translation that they use here. When it says subject to God's anger, the, the phrase is, we're by nature children of wrath. And that's so much different from what this is saying here. Children of wrath. Wrath is different from anger in the sense that wrath, God's wrath, we have to understand what we're talking about when we say that. We're not talking about somebody sitting around angry at something. God's wrath was his reaction to sin entering into the world. His wrath, according to Romans 1, is what we see playing out in this world all around us in its broken state. Paul says that in his wrath, he gave us over. We wanted a world without God. We wanted it without God's order and his control. And God, in response, said, all right, here you go. This is his wrath playing out. Children of wrath means that we were born into this separated condition from God. When we say we're subject to God, the way it's worded there makes it gives us this image of God sitting around just angry. Like, oh man, there he goes. Give me my flies water. I'm getting that one. That's not the picture at all. That's never Paul's picture. Wrath is what we're experiencing. It's all around. It's all, it's all here. That separation is, is there. We were born into that separation. Uh, but God is so, we get to verse four, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages. What, what does that mean, Paul? That's interesting. Anyway, Paul, God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. All right, there's a lot in all of this and we're going to work our way through it. But basically the idea, what he wants us to know about our identities is that we are loved by God and we're made alive through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the... That's the bottom line of everything that Paul is, is saying in all of that section. Admittedly, the terminology is, is deeply um, metaphoric and, and theologically laced. You know, we get to terminology like spiritual death and spiritual life, and it can seem a little bit nebulous to us. You know, we were singing about it this morning. It was beautiful. I loved it. You know, we run out of that grave. But, but, but we want to understand what we're talking about when we say stuff like that. Because, you know, like somebody could say, well, you know, what does that mean? Clearly, I've always been alive in a technical sense. I was breathing 
My heart was beating. I've been semi-conscious anyway and aware. So what are we talking about here? When we're talking about these conceptualizations of life and death, the way that Paul is. For Paul, what he's describing in verses 1 and 3, disobedience to God's order, following our passionate desires, and and obeying the urges of our own self-will, that was the air we breathed. That was what defined us, our pursuits in that brokenness. And Paul describes that as spiritual death because it is leading towards ultimate death. It's leading towards that thing that has no good ending to it, right? And so that's the old idea. You could say a dead end. You could even substitute that thinking in your mind. And so imagine it like that, like a, a dead end alley. Picture that, this big, gigantic alley, but it goes nowhere. It's a big dead end. And all of humanity gathered into that alley. And all they can do is try to jockey for a better position in there. Do whatever you can to try to get a better spot in that dead end place and spend the rest of your days trying to figure out how you can better yourself within that dead end space with nothing else beyond it. Then we get the revelation of Christ and we become aware of an avenue out of that dead end, which leads to an open road with wide open horizons And we feel alive and full of hope and full of possibilities. That's the conceptualization behind these things. That's the idea that Paul's getting at. And it touches at the core of who we are. Our identity is found in this new, wide-open horizon life with meaning in the present, meaning and purpose in the present, and hope for the future. This is what God calls us into, this new reality that actually changes us because our priorities and our values change because of that. Now no longer are we consumed with jockeying for position in that dead-end alley. Now there's this wide-open horizon adventure before us. We're no longer breathing the same air in that alley. We've moved into something fresh and open and life-giving. Despite our condition of pursuing things that were counter to God's order, Paul boldly declares God's love for us, which was his motivation for providing us with this new life, this new identity. We're told here that God gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. That is, uh, you know, our death, the death that we were participants in, that was the consequence of the sin that came into this world, our death was reversed by Jesus's resurrection, the one for the many. And his resurrection now we claim as our own. Uh, and, you know, and, and more than that, Paul, for Paul, our trust in Jesus actually not only raises us from that dead-end state, gives us hope for an eternal future, but it, it, in the immediate, connects us presently with Jesus in his place of power over all things. The language that Paul is using here is not far off and away language somewhere. He is speaking of our, in a present tense, right now, we are connected with Jesus in his place of power. Now, that does not mean that he's expecting us to run around and try to seize power in his name or expand his rule by force. It's more of a reminder of who we are who we are in this world that we're in. When it feels like the world is squeezing in on us, remember who you are is what he's saying. In other words, remember who you are when the world feels like it's falling apart, 
when we feel like we are, have absolutely no control, when we feel like things spin out of control, remember who we are. Remember where you presently are in a very real way connected to Jesus Christ who is ruler over all things. And, you know, again, this is not connected to Christ. And again, we come back to some of the strange things that have developed within our cultural perspective of of things like heaven. But when he's saying we're connected, seated in the heavenlies, he's not talking about off in space somewhere or somewhere far, a galaxy far, far away. For him, that's all present right here. We just can't see it. And we're not able to perceive it with our natural senses, but it's here. It's actually, it's all around us. It's present with us, what's veiled from us right now. But we are connected. We could say present with Jesus and he with us and he is in charge. How does that change your perception of what's happening in your life, of what's happening in this world? And, and, and we're the ones who are connected with him in this state for what reason? Why does Paul say he connected us to Christ, brought us back to life in Christ's resurrection? Because he loves us. That's it. It all comes down to why would he do this? Because he loves us. And that is the very core of y'all's identity now, of our identity. That's the core of it. God loves us. He loves you. Yeah, but Rob, you don't understand. I'm not that lovable. Boy, you have no idea. Neither am I. Neither was Paul. Neither has anybody been on this planet from our perception, from our ability to conceive of why a person would have value. From God's side, he loves us. He loves you. So when we feel alone, we feel misunderstood, we feel hurt or isolated when we're tempted to be anxious or uncertain about our place or someone questions us, who do you think you are? Paul wants us to remember who we are. I am loved by God. When that question comes up, who are you? That's the answer. I'm loved by God. I feel like it helps to say it at times, to announce it to yourself. If nobody else, announce it to yourself. Remember who you are. I am loved by God. If I ask you right now, who are you? That sounded good. That sounded really good. And it's true as well. I know. I Listen, I didn't mean to make you say, I don't want to go to that place. You make me say stuff. I, I'm not, but I feel like it's helpful to, to enunciate that. Because listen, there are times I had to stay, you know, I'm a very insecure person. I'm sure you probably know that by now. But there are many times where I have to stand in front of the mirror and remind me, you're loved by God. God loves you. God loves you. That's why he raised you from the dead and gave you new life. Not because you're so fantastic that, you know, that's an amazing thing. And we got, you know, there's work he needed done over here. So he's going to get you. No, he loves you. He loves you like a parent, like that perfect parent would love their child. Who are you? Oh, that was more anemic that time. Who are you? See, and oh boy, 
if we could sense or see into that heavenly realm where we stand right now, something moves through that place when a room full of people enunciate who they are because of what God in Christ has done. All right, so he moves on here. Verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ. And this is the part where maybe sometimes we we quit reading. He, He made us new in Christ so. And that word so is important in there. Or to to accomplish this, the the good things he has planned for us long ago. So that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So since the Reformation, this has been viewed as the supreme manifesto on on salvation by grace. And rightly so. I mean, it is. Our redeemed condition did not happen because we earned it or that we deserved it. For Paul, he's describing here what he sees as a huge imbalance in this. God's provided life to people who did not deserve it at all. It was all provided to us because God loves us and he gave us this new life as a gift. Now, the gift that we've been given, as Paul is describing it, is unconditioned. That means that it wasn't given to us based on our merits wasn't given to us because, you know, somehow there was something in us that he knew, you know, he could uh, use somewhere down the line. It's nothing like that. It's completely without merit on our part. We were dead after all. That's the way he's describing it. But that doesn't mean that the gift was given without expectation. And I think that's where maybe sometimes we get a little confused on this. We, you know, like I said, I worry that we skip over verse 10 in our reading of this passage. You've heard me say it this way before, and this is really true. This is the way to sum up what Paul is saying there in verse 10, that we don't do good works to earn our salvation. We do good works because we've been saved. And this again is touching on who we are. This gets back to the core of our identity. We're loved by God, but I also believe that we see here that we are living images of God's goodness and grace. In the creation story, God made humanity in his own image, meaning that we were created, we were made to to represent God's loving rule over all creation. That's what it means to be the image of a ruler, that we are the representation of his good and, and healing rule. That was our original purpose. Our redemption by Christ returns us to that original vocation. We now live as representatives of God's love and care and goodness and grace towards all creation. That's the idea behind the good works as the New Testament represents it. We aren't saved by doing good things. We do good things because our identities have been restored. We've been brought back to what we were originally intended to be and to do. I had a phone. You know, remember when smartphones first came out? I mean, that was the thing. You get a smartphone, and that's the, the my greatest delight when you get a brand new smartphone was to go through and put as many apps on it as I could. Ooh, I want this one. Oh, I want that one. Oh, that would be a lot of fun. And I was filling that thing up with all this stuff so that 
a couple of months down the line, it's not working right. It's like, what is it? You get in here and you see all these warnings. Oh, this is bloatware. Oh, that's actually spyware. What are you doing with that on your phone? And so it got to the point where I, it just was not functional. It wasn't working. So what did I do? I, I went back to I reset it to factory conditions. I wiped all of that stuff off and reset it to what it was originally intended to do. And then it worked. I say, well, you know, call my wife. Hey, hey, what's going on? Those kinds of things. I could call anybody, actually, not just even her. But uh, <laughs> so that's the idea, though, behind behind this whole thing is that we're reset. It's like being reset to factory conditions. We're we're returned to who we were meant to be and able to do what we were meant to do to reveal God's goodness and his grace in the land of the living. So then the question, you know, Rob, but okay, how is it a gift though? Uh, How is it a gift of grace if God had expectations behind this, that somehow it was going to produce something in in me? You know, a gift should have no strings attached. If it's grace, there's no strings at all. And I would say to that, yes, technically that's true, but no as well. Because I could give a gift to somebody out of love for them. I, I love them. I want them to have this, and there are no strings attached from my size. I'm, I'm not expecting reciprocity in this at all. I want you to have this gift because I love you. But if the one receiving the gift never acknowledges it, never even turns around and says thank you, just moves along as though nothing has happened, I would never know if that love is reciprocated. How would I ever know that, that, that there was a shared love in this. It doesn't change the nature of the gift. The gift was still given with no strings attached, but it does have effect on the relationship. And the one thing we talk about all the time is Christianity is not another religion with more things that we do and perform in order to appease a deity somewhere. What do we always say? It's not a religion. It's a a relationship. That means everything that we understand about it comes down to relational terms which means we have to then look at this, not like a transaction between deities that, that are going to bring us good fortune or good luck, but on a relational level. How does this affect the relationship? The gift is free and unearned. God's love in this whole thing is never in question. But our love for God is pretty much always because there's a lot There's a lot of conditioning. There's a lot of stuff encoded in us that has to be detoxed and removed, as as Paul says in Romans 7. Can it be relational love if one party doesn't reciprocate that love? God loves us. He redeemed our lives. He gave us a restored identities. Identity as representatives of His goodness in this world. Our challenge is is to embrace that identity and live that identity out in our daily lives. Not to earn God's love, not to get Him to love us a little more. No, that's never in question. Because we're loved, we respond this way. Do you get that? you see what I'm saying in this? It's actually pretty deep, and it moves so much more deeply than just mere religion or performance-based mentalities can take us. This moves us into to scary territory, deep relationship with the one who made us. 
All right. Well, I can see you're getting uncomfortable. Let's move on. Verse 11. Paul's going to, to make the same point uh, and the same contrast, only this time not on a cosmic scale of humanity and God, but on a societal level about an identity of acceptance in him. So verse 11, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. You were pr- who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you didn't know the covenant promises made, God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So here Paul is... You know, he sets the stage for this contrast and he's speaking to Gentiles, you know, us. He's telling us that at one time we were outside of God's covenant operations on this earth. So the Hebrew scriptures tell us this story of God choosing one family, Abraham's family, out of humanity to be the vehicle through whom he would bless all the nations. The point was always for all the nations, but he chose this one group to be the means, the ones that he would use to bring this about, the blessings to all the nations, Genesis uh, chapter 12. So in that era, God's focus was on, was on Israel, and Gentiles were on the outside of those purposes. And that was based on ethnic identity in its, in its cultural representation. Paul seems to be highlighting how this caused a prejudicial attitude among the people of the covenant who looked at those ethnic markers as a cause for feeling superior to those who didn't bear them. And he saw that as a problem. He saw that as a problem that God needed to solve, which we, he talks about verse 13. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. And remember, this is not individual language here. He's speaking to us on a community level. He brought peace to us, brought peace to y'all. He, he united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. Are you able to follow that? I know this is kind of dense, but... If, if you see what he's saying here, the problem was this barrier and division between Israel and the rest of the nations, between those who identified as part of the covenant law and those who were not part of it. So instead of enabling Israel to become the means by which they would be the blessing to all the nations, because Israel couldn't keep the law, the law brought curse and death on Israel and created a hostility between Israel and the nations, the ones that they were supposed to be a light to. So God resolves this by removing the barrier, by nullifying the commands of the ritual law through Christ's death. That's how Paul describes it right there. It's right in your Bible. That's all done. So when somebody comes and tries to say, you're still supposed to be under the law or whatever, take them here to Ephesians and point this out. It's been nullified through Christ's sacrifice for us. It's done. It's all done. And man, look, I know this is heady stuff. Just bear, hang with me. We'll keep reading. We'll, 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 we'll make sense of this. So we're still in verse 15. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself, and here's the important stuff, one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. 
He brought this good news of peace to y'all Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who y'all were near. Now, all of us together can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens um, along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's holy family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So Paul has just gotten really excited as he's writing this, and he's mixing up his metaphors all over the place. So, you know, we're gathered up as his family, and we're built together as a new temple where God now takes up his residence, where where God now dwells. But all of this speaks of inclusion and unification of people through our relationship with Jesus. So it speaks to our identity in that we are God's family And that family is a diverse and unified new humanity. That means, you know, if here's the thing. If you're somebody who underlines stuff in your Bible, uh, you know, go go through and take note of how much Paul is using the word one and together and peace. And, And in contrast to that, divided and hostility. And as we said earlier, these truths about our salvation and redemption weren't intended to be understood purely as just individual experiences. This was meant to reveal God's intent for community. How it is that we are all bonded together. Our salvation means that we are part of something, part of a people group, a new humanity who has been unified as God's family through Jesus. So that means that the things that define people and divide people in this broken world, the things that assign people different levels of status or elevation are irrelevant because Jesus did not die to prop up our old identities in this broken world's system of things. Jesus died to give us new identities. Jesus didn't come to give us better versions of our old self. We are brand new humans. All of those old ways of divining self and assessing worth are completely unconnected with who we are in Christ. So all of those things, all of those things that, listen, were applied to us, but that if we're going to be honest, we still try to apply to others. All of it is irrelevant in Christ because of who he is. So think of the perfection of Christ. What complaint will we level against him? Where will we value him on the scales that we use from this broken world system? Is he valuable? Is he lovable? Is he good? Is he worthy? All of those are applied to you and I and applied to the people that we see in our lives and in this room. It's applied to all who are in Christ. All of us in him made into one new humanity that is beautiful, diverse, <laughs> unified, but diverse. All of the various things that go into making you know, our, our cultural perceptions are still in place, but... 
None of those determine value, worth, or any of those types of things. We are all in Christ, made new and made whole. And in this family, cultures, economics, ethnicities can never be the basis, can never be the basis for determining value or exclusion. We're drawn together in our diverseness into this singular love of God for the human race. On on the societal landscape of human interaction, the church is meant to be an anomaly. It's meant to be a place of startling unity and acceptance, a place where God's beautiful love for humanity is on full display, like a temple gleaming in the sunlight. That's the goal, anyway. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're called to. We're, you know, we'll be honest, we're pretty far from it right now <laughs> in terms of, you know, just on the cultural landscape. The church looks pretty much like everything else, but God's not done with us yet. He's still working. He's still doing what he's been doing all along. So listen, I know you've endured a lot of intense uh, theology this morning. These passages are pretty deep. We, we dove in pretty deep and even still only scratched the surface. And so it might be hard to retain all of this. I know I've been up here yammering for a while. But if nothing else, I hope you take away from this a reminder of who you are. You are part of God's new human family in all of its diversity, but unified in him. You're a representative of God's goodness in this world, called to represent that goodness in tangible and practical ways. And the reason for it all is that you're loved by God. That's who you are. You're loved by God. And therefore, all these other things are true. So in closing, if you'll indulge me just one more time, let me ask you who you are, and please answer me out loud. Who are you? Right on. If you'll believe that, if you'll take that into the world, you can be a world changer.